Please note, this episode deals with conversations around sex work, transphobia, violence against women, sexual violence, and missing and murdered women. There is occasional use of adult language. Every single time that we show Hookers on Davy, people who see the film always, always, always ask, where are the people now? Welcome to Cinema Reignited, a podcast by the Academy of Canadian Cinema and Television, powered by Telecom Canada. I'm Samah Ali, your host, and in each episode of this series, we will explore a different film that has recently been digitized as part of the Canadian Cinema Reignited initiative, led by Telecom Canada and in partnership with Hot Docs, the Academy of Canadian Cinema and Television, the Festival du Nouveau Cinéma, and the Toronto International Film Festival. By taking you on a journey through time when each film was made and how the film relates to broader historical and societal themes, Cinema Reignited will help you rediscover the legacy of Canadian film and ensure that the stories of our past are not lost to future audiences. We're taking a look at these seminal Canadian films through a modern day lens so we can gain insights into the shaping of our country's identity and culture. Starting with Hookers on Davy, the 1984 documentary by Janice Cole and Holly Dale. He likes you. <laughs> I just talked to him. <laughs> he wants to go down on me, give me, give him head. Then no. Fuck for seventy dollars. Oh. Hi. Well, how much do you think you're about spending here? About twenty dollars. About twenty dollars. Go down to Super Value, get a pork chop, and fuck that. <laughs> In 1984, filmmakers Janice Cole and Holly Dale turned their lens back on a marginalized group that had been the focus of a short film they made as students at Sheridan College. The groundbreaking documentary film, Hookers on Davy, follows the lives of sex workers in Vancouver's downtown West End during 1983. After nearly a year of researching possible locations across North America, Cole and Dale chose the Vancouver neighborhood surrounding Davy Street at the time, the prostitution capital of Canada. On any given day or night, the streets were home to over a hundred cis, trans, and queer sex workers. Hmm? No, I just want to get, get horny with you, do not you? Yeah, can you spend 150 for a party with two of us? Yeah. You a man or a woman? Yeah, I'm a woman. I can even prove it. Why, do I look like a man? After months of research, establishing relationships, and eventually earning trust within the community, Cole and Dale began filming and interviewing a select group. In contrast to the growing sentiment at the time to remove the sex workers from Vancouver's West End, the film presents its subjects as relatable, funny, and concerned for each other's well-being and safety. We get to hear their stories, in their own words. For me, the camaraderie and the support between the characters was compassionate and brought a sensitive angle to an extremely difficult industry. The film documents a balanced portrayal of each individual's life. Heartbreaking accounts of violence, abuse, and alienation are combined with moments of laughter, joy, and friendship. Cole and Dale captured difficult and tender moments that allowed each sex worker to advocate for their work, lifestyle, and push for societal changes they needed to thrive. It wasn't long after the filming of Hookers on Davy that the West End went through a controversial series of severe policy changes 
and policing over the period of just a few years. Campaigns by anti-prostitution groups and lawmakers would eventually lead to the expulsion of sex workers from Davy Street. Police forced the sex workers into other neighborhoods in advance of the World's Fair Expo 1986. As we'll learn, the decimation of the Davy community put many sex workers in precarious and unsafe environments that led to an increase in violence against them. Devastatingly, many of them would ultimately end up missing or murdered. The film was groundbreaking and controversial when it premiered in 1984. It started a conversation that echoes to this day. To learn more about how that conversation started, I was honored to speak with Janice Cole about the creation of Hookers on Davy from her home in Toronto. So let's get into it. Why were you originally inspired to make this film? We were inspired to make Hookers on Davy because when Holly, Dale, and myself first met as students at Sheridan College, we made two student films, one about prostitution and one including prostitution. And we knew doing those two 10-minute films as students that someday we wanted to revisit the topic in a longer format. And it seemed just perfect for us after we did our first feature documentary, which was uh, P for W Prison for Women. And how did you go about choosing the subjects to take part in Hookers on Davy? That was a pretty long process because initially, after P for W, Studio D was willing to make a film with us, our second documentary. We told them it was going to be on prostitution. And initially, we had some research funding to look into the topic. And we went to a few American cities and every major Canadian city. And what we found in Vancouver was incredibly unique. And we decided to make the film there and also Davy Street had been an area that one of our subjects, who was a friend of ours in our student film, where she had worked in the 60s on Davy Street. It all came together to shoot it on Davy Street. If you're talking about the actual people in the film, we spent about two months just hanging out before we shot the film. And the subjects, they evolved naturally naturally. It's a visceral feeling from hanging out with people and becoming friends, just knowing who to concentrate on when you start shooting your film, which is low budget for us. So we have to be very careful to have a low shooting ratio. So we picked our subjects quite carefully. With your subjects being very carefully vetted and strong relationships, most of the folks that we saw in the film were on Davy Street. So I wonder, why did you also decide to interview and include the perspective of Michelle's mother? Michelle's mother did not live in Vancouver. So we spent two months getting to know everybody and then about another 18 days shooting the film. Halfway into shooting the film, Michelle was having a very rough time, kind of a nervous breakdown, rough time. A lot of pressure was amounting on her. She had a fight with very good friends of hers, which we caught on camera. You want to call a power trip, honey? I'll play a power trip. I'll play a fucking power trip. Worse than no, you've ever you fucking, fucking seen. Please stop! No, you start. Get your hands off of me, and I mean it. No, you I said get your fucking hands off of me, Tiffany. Next time I drop you. Okay. Talk to me, baby. Next time I drop you. Oh, for fuck's sake, Michelle, say goodbye. And um, after that fight, we thought that we should perhaps stop shooting. We wondered if our presence was interfering in people's lives. 
everybody wanted to come to a meeting to talk about it with us. And they said, no, this is the stress of this job and you should capture it and you should just keep on filming. And we said, okay, great. And Michelle was making plans to see her mother. Instead, her mother came down to visit her and it just happened. And we said, well, if your mom's coming, could we interview her? What do you wish for Michelle? Truthfully, that he would revert, but he's not going to. Either that or he would go ahead and become totally transvestual. That he would go back to school. Mark is a marvelous artist. That he would learn something, both academically, just about anything that would get him off the streets. And you mentioned Studio D earlier. I understand that you started off with Studio D, but you ended up finishing independently. What tone were you hoping to capture that might be different from Studio D's vision at the time? Well, it might be a difference in vision more than tone. We are very supportive of Studio D. There's been a lot made about this departure that we had. It just seemed like a natural departure. What happened is we were raising some independent money to go towards the production and working with Studio D, who was going to finance the film. So the first stage was research, and we did an exhaustive research for a year. After that year, we decided to film on Davie Street because it was a unique community. The prostitutes worked together rather than in isolation of each other. And they worked to keep the streets pimp-free instead of having pimps controlling their business. So for a number of reasons, we wanted definitely to make our film on Davie Street in Vancouver. And that wasn't what the film board was interested in. And because they weren't interested in it, instead of changing what we wanted to do, we changed our financing and went independent. To us, it was just a natural part of the filmmaking process that We'd have to make it independently to get the vision that we wanted to get. And that's the only way that we would really want to make a film. Given the time, how was the film perceived when it was released? Well, it was perceived warmly. People really liked it. And so we just um, showed it at the Blur Cinema and sold out and then had a party afterwards. And then it did show at the Vancouver Film Festival, and we brought everybody from the film to the screening and had a talk after, and then we had a big party together, and it was fantastic. But audiences have always been great um, and very supportive, and even through to today, I get um, notes from people who have just seen it or are about to go to a screening or have come upon it somewhere. I get a lot of very supportive notes about it. In hindsight, is there anything that you wish you would have done differently during the making of this film? You know, with a little more money, we made it for $70,000, putting all the money into things that went on the screen. We did, of course, have to get a room in a hotel. We did it in a hotel commonly known as a hooker hotel. Holly and I shared a room and Erilyn and Nessie, our, our two crew members, shared a room. So we lived modestly and put all the rest of the money into the production to get it on screen. It was very intense spending a couple of months in Vancouver doing the research, staying with my brother and having, you know, a low budget shoot. And then it was very hard leaving everybody because we became so close in that compacted uh, amount of time. We became very, very close and 
Holly left. She had a commitment in Winnipeg and I stayed the extra days I was able to before I had to leave. And it was just re- really hard to uh, say goodbye. I can imagine. Are there any of the people you met on Davie Street that you still have a relationship with today? No, we wanted to keep in touch with everybody that we made friends with in Hookers on Davie. And we tried very hard to do that. But we knew that it was timely to make the film also when we did, because there was a group of um, West Enders trying to move prostitution out of the area of Davie Street because it was residential. And we thought it important to capture Davie Street in case that did happen, which in fact did happen shortly after the film came out. They were successful in moving the prostitution out of the area of Davie Street and over to Thurlow. So when I went back to Vancouver, of course, I was living in Toronto at the time. Holly and I both were, but I'm, I grew up in Vancouver, so I go back to see uh, friends and family. And when I went back to Vancouver and looked for everybody, the only person I could find working Thurlow was Michelle. And we spent time together and very happy to see each other. And I saw Gina in the downtown east side in 2009 when I was making um, a thesis project at, uh, for my MFA at Ryerson. But other than that, I haven't seen anybody from the film or heard where they went. That's tough. Yeah, when they moved it out of the area, when they moved it out of the area that everybody was familiar with working, I mean, some people might have gone to Thurlow, some to Broadway, some to New Westminster, some to the downtown east side. So there's like four really close areas to go um, and work in the city and just beyond. But also you might leave and go to a different city for some reason. And are there any interesting facts about the film's production that you want to tell our audiences? I just think that it was a beautiful experience making Hookers on Davy. It was a difficult experience. It was highly stressful, but it was beautiful. Working with our very minimal crew and uh, working day and night in order to shoot the film. I mean, our days were about 16 hours long sometimes. Just looking back on it is something really relevant and important in my life. I can imagine. And you've had quite a bit of time reflecting on this film too and the impact that it's made on Canadian film. A huge congratulations to you. Everything that you have mentioned is beautiful. And I love how we are giving you this space to reflect on Hookers on Davy. My final question to you is we've talked about a lot. And in the multitudes of what you said, sometimes we're not always able to capture everything you want to say. And so I'm going to let you have the last word. Is there anything that we have left out or you want to acknowledge? I will say one thing. When we show Hookers on Davy, every single time that we show Hookers on Davy anywhere, and this is from the beginning right up until it recently showed at Hot Docs in April, people who see the film always, always, always ask, where are the people now? They always want to know what's happening with people because they care about them from watching the film. And it's always very touching that people ask those questions. Um, and we're moved by that. Unfortunately, as I said earlier, we don't know very much about what happened to people in this film because we weren't able to track them down when we tried and they gravitated to different places who only knows where that is. So 
that's difficult, but it's still very touching that people connect with them so much in the film that they want to know. I would love to know myself, okay? I've always wanted to know. We unfortunately did hear that Michelle um, died, and that was verified for us, and that was about five years after the film, um, but that is the only one that we heard, and it wasn't, it wasn't very good news. We're now going to take a quick break for a message from our podcast partner, Telefilm Canada. Some people think going to the movies is about watching one, but they've forgotten the true magic of the cinema. At the movies, you can smell the memory of being a kid. Taste the wonder in losing yourself in a well-directed masterpiece. Touch the parts of your heart you forgot were still tender. And hear the contagious laughter of the crowd. See the lights dim and the energy shift. It's time to get back to it. Feel again at a theater near you. Sex work was not just on the minds of the filmmakers. In June of 1983, the same year that Cole and Dale were shooting hookers on Davy in Vancouver, the Canadian Minister of Justice established a special committee to inquire into the issues of prostitution and pornography. Known as the Fraser Committee after its chairman, it released its report in April 1985. According to a Canadian government publication on prostitution, prepared by James R. Robertson, the Fraser Report found that prostitution was widespread across Canada, especially in urban centers. The main factor that compelled women to participate in prostitution was economic distress, despite very little empirical information about it at the time. The report also found that the Canadian public was ambivalent about prostitution. Many Canadians felt opposed to further criminalization while supporting actions that would reduce the, and I quote, nuisance. Criminalization, decriminalization, and regulation were reviewed by the committee as suggested strategies for dealing with prostitution. Their recommendations were a combination of all three in varying degrees. These included economic and social reforms to alleviate the causes of prostitution. Robertson wrote that the committee recommended that governments in Canada strengthen their moral and financial commitment to the removal of social inequalities between men and women, ensure that there are adequate social programs to assist women and young people in need, and direct more funding to community groups involved in the care and welfare of both practicing and reformed prostitutes. Despite those recommendations made in 1985 and controversial changes made to the criminal code in the decades that followed, the conditions for sex workers have not improved, according to Susan Davis, director of the BC Coalition of Experiential Communities. This BC Coalition is a group of sex worker activists who strive to eliminate the oppressive systems and forces that create harm for individuals in the sex industry. I spoke with Susan to hear the perspective of somebody with personal experience as a sex worker that has spent decades being an advocate for sex work law reform. Susan, thank you for joining me today. When Hookers on Davy was made in the mid-1980s, what were the laws in Canada surrounding sex workers? So back then, it was technically prostitution was legal, but everything surrounding it was not. They used to push people up and down the street. By that, I mean the police would come and arrest everybody 
and tell you to, if you don't want to be arrested, move over one block. Uh, if you don't want to be arrested, move over one block. And so block by block, they'd move you over and then push you back to the beginning. And it was like this little loop going back and forth. It was really a dark time for sex work. In the film, you see people creating community and that kind of thing. And obviously that happens all the time, especially amongst criminalized populations. We really have no choice but to have one another. During the 80s, it was, um, you know, a get rid of sex work sentiment. Following the release of the Fraser Report in April 1985, Bill C-49 was passed by Parliament later that year in December. The new legislation made it illegal for a person to engage in acts of prostitution in public. This included stopping cars or impeding the flow of pedestrians with purpose of engaging in prostitution or obtaining the services of a prostitute. The bill's objective was to, quote, remove street prostitutes and their customers from downtown neighborhoods. And how did these laws put sex workers and other marginalized groups in the country at a disadvantage and or a greater risk of violence? Well, as with any kind of criminalization, it sets the police force who are supposed to protect you against you as you are a criminal. You're not allowed to communicate, for example. So if they were doing sweeps of John's, the women, myself included, because I did work on the street, you lean in the window, you take a look around to do a scan to see if the guy is drunk, is there a rape kit in there, is there rope, tape, something like that. And if you don't have the time to do that, you have to jump in and just drive away if you're trying to avoid the police. And of course, then you're left to negotiate your way out of the car. So you haven't set any terms for your employment, which I know it's difficult to consider trying to work in these kinds of conditions, but sex work is a job. You know, once you drive away and the guy says to you, I'll give you five bucks and I want to put my fist in your bum. No, I don't want to do that. Well, you got to wait for him to pull over. He has all the control where if you are able to lean in and take a look, you have control if you negotiate before the transaction occurs. So you can see how vulnerable it made people as well as of course, the discussion about sex work was all based around nimbyism. Like at the time in the mid-80s, there were Crow, who were the concerned residents of the West End, who pushed for what is now known as the West End Injunction, which pushed all the sex workers off of Davie Street and down towards Richards and Seymour. And then again, after that, further down to the downtown east side. And the way it was talked about at the time, sex workers were a problem to be gotten rid of and so that's what happened. People tried to get rid of us and it worked. So many missing women, so many bodies. You know, those were the really deep, dark times for our community. In the 80s, we were still looking at the aftermath of the removal of sex workers from the supper clubs and the strip clubs. So the city fathers in their infinite wisdom decided that Strip clubs and supper clubs were exploiting sex workers and so threatened the business owners with uh, criminal charges. In some cases, they did charge them, which forced the business owners not to allow sex workers inside anymore. Whenever anybody who's ill-informed about sex work takes action about, against our community, people die. 
You can see it in Dr. Lohman's statistics, you know, in 1975, when they first started booting all the sex workers out of the strip clubs, that's when the first recorded murder of a sex worker took place. We had just been classified as human beings in the city. Before that, it was NHI, or no human involved. So they didn't have to investigate when they found our bodies. It was just like they'd found a dead animal or something. And so we had just been classified as human. So you can see how it goes up. In 85, the murder rate of sex workers goes up 400%. In the film, we hear from the mother of Michelle, who voices her fear and uncertainty regarding Michelle's transition. These people, they... they a prostitute, a transsexual, a transvestite. It seems when they decide this is the life for them, it gives the male population a license to murder them, to do anything they want. And that's not right. What were some of the overall cultural attitudes towards sex workers and marginalized groups like BIPOC and LGBTQ plus people at the time of this film, the 1980s, in the 1980s at large? So the violence they were facing was terrible as well. A lot of hatred. The Davy community, where we see the movie takes place, actually, you know, it was kind of... Um, an anomaly for the queer community in that they had somewhere that they could go and feel relatively safe compared to other parts of Vancouver or the Lower Mainland or Canada, for that matter. At the time, the attitudes were all against us. And unfortunately, you know, with second wave feminism, they had decided that sex work was bad and they're still clinging to that ideal today and tried to abolish sex work as if you know, somehow that would uh, lead to equality between uh, men and women. We were all seen as some kind of um, plague on society. And so that's why in the film, seeing those two movements together, the queer community as well as the sex working community, which is really a sex workers' rights march, but they're in the queer community, and which is not really like today where it seems like the queer movement has kind of abandoned sex workers, uh, trying to distance themselves. Susan, on that note, we know that BIPOC people are often overrepresented proportionately in sex work communities in Canada, especially Indigenous people. What are some of these specific challenges BIPOC people face when it comes to sex work? Racism in hiring in safer indoor workspaces. Racism by clients. For example, offering Indigenous sex workers less money, feeling that they might be desperate. You know, we have taught society to not value Indigenous people. And so sex workers become someone who it's okay to harm because nobody will notice, nobody will do anything about it. And of course, years and years and years of the police doing nothing about it and not even being classified as human has really embedded that attitude. I lived on the street. I lived in those hotels in the downtown east side. Now I own a small business. That's in part because I had family to help me. What if you don't have family because they were all killed? People just don't think about it. When you see people on the street, you don't think, well, why don't they just get their family to help them? Well, I would remind people that Jane Doe, who was a victim of Canada's worst serial killer, 
Uh, but he also killed Sarah DeVries and uh, 48 other women, one of whom was Jane Doe. And nobody has identified her still. Nobody knows who she is. So there was nobody looking for her. Did she have anybody at all? Who knows? Susan is referring to Robert Picton, the convicted serial killer from Coquitlam, B.C., whose crimes were committed against Vancouver women during the 1970s, 80s, and 90s. I want to go back to one of the subjects of the film. A lot of the subjects advocated for a pimp-free street. And I would love to know, is this reflected in today's advocacy work as well? Certainly, I've had interactions with pimps. What is a pimp? To the zealots, it would be anyone who owns a sex industry business. And that's just, that's just ludicrous. We need safe places to work, right? So people who own sex industry businesses and who book calls for other people and things like that, they're not pimps, just to be clear. The pimp-free zone refers to, historically, what is known as a takeover bid by these American-style pimps who came to Vancouver and tried to force all sex workers on the street to become run by pimps, to be the middlemen. Of course, the famously, the owners of the Penthouse nightclub refused to allow those pimps inside and fought against them. They had their lives threatened, everything else. Um, and you saw actions like independent sex workers on street refusing pimps and trying to fight against them. And so ultimately, when you put people in a precarious situation and they don't have security, they have to hire their own. So if the police aren't protecting you, you need someone else to do so. And if you are working in an industry which is totally pushed underground, then you don't have access to OHS or occupational health and safety training. You know, in the old days, it was word of mouth from the brothel madame to the to the rest of the workers sharing her knowledge and experience on how to protect herself, right? But when all of that was disrupted and madames were deemed criminals, there was a gap, a gap that where sex workers who were entering the industry didn't have somebody to teach them what was right or how to work safely or what the laws were or what was expected. So when you're a new person and you're not from the underground culture and you enter that culture, you have to trust that the people are telling you that the rules within that culture are what they're saying is true. And so a lot of times the pimps will just say, you have to have a pimp. That's how it is. I do my best still to this day. Uh, we all do, especially in Vancouver, where there is non-enforcement here. You know, you don't have to fear a pimp. Uh, those days are over and those guys need to move, move on. Well, Susan, what do you believe still needs to change in our country so that we can better support sex workers and create a safer community for them? So the government and others need to get out of the way. We have developed occupational health and safety training materials so that we could standardize information that's given to people that are new to the sex industry. So they have access to resources and accurate information about their health. We need the government and others to get out of the way so that we can actually organize ourselves and begin to fight for better working conditions. We're going to court in October. 
with Charter Challenge is finally coming to fruition again. I was part of the first one. Now I'm part of this one. It's been 20 years trying to get to this point again. So, you know, we need the legal reforms. We need to be decriminalized. Time for Canada to step up to the plate and honor those obligations. But we also need support from, you know, like the Canadian Federation of Labor or others to really begin to hash out what our union design or industry association design will look like and to support us in developing what the purpose of those organizations are, which we've done some work in that regard. But the labor organizing needs to be supported as well as, you know, we need to be given a voice at the table. In Vancouver, because of the case of the missing women, there's little more will here to try something different than fall into the same old um, abolitionist trap, right? They've tried that. They've tried it. They've tried it. They've seen what the outcome is. The outcome is sex workers are dead and the police are embarrassed. We have the key to our own safety, as which is in turn supports community safety. So by closing brothels, you force sex workers onto the street, which led to communities banning sex workers from the street and led to sex workers being delivered into the hands of not one, but three serial killers in our city alone. So stop doing that. Why are we on this bloody loop? You know, like, talk to us. I asked Janice and Susan why today's film lovers should see Hookers on Davy as part of the Canadian Cinema Reignited program. They both agreed that the film provides a window in time to that era in Canadian history and the sex worker community on Vancouver's Davy Street. Susan shared why the film is relevant to the conversation around sex work today. Especially at this time, when we got the Charter Challenge about to be heard by the Supreme Court, and as sex workers across the country are really fighting for inclusion on every level, that the community at large, Canadians generally, understand how long we've been fighting about this. You know, how many times this abolition approach has been tried and not worked. Can we please move forward? This film is extremely important, but also it's beautiful. It's so beautifully filmed and I think that it's worth seeing just on that merit alone. You know, while it does only provide um, a cross-section of street-level sex work, that view is true. And for those people, some of whom went on to become prolific activists, Michelle is responsible for establishing the West End Sex Worker Memorial, which is on Jervis and Davey. This in many ways would be part of her legacy, but really shows the beginning of that journey. You know, not only is it beautiful, but it really is the tale of, of, of an activist, of a movement, and that, it, that it's important that Canadians understand it. Janice stressed how important it is to hear the stories of those that often go unrepresented. It's important to know that there was a community of prostitutes that did work together, that did support each other, that did manage to keep their money for themselves by working independently instead of through pimps. I think it's very important for that reason. I think also because of the goal with our filmmaking, which is 
to take people that you haven't heard from and bring them into a realm of hearing their voice and seeing their experience and getting to know them as they presented themselves. We try very, very hard to experience their story and recreate their story as closely as we can to the authentic truth. And also for the era when the film was made and remembering what it was like and what was possible for a community of uh, prostitutes who worked together. Hookers on Davy is a film that's as important today as it was in 1984. It broke ground and gave sex workers a voice to share their stories with honesty and dignity in a time when Canada was investigating how to legislate sex work, an issue that we're still grappling with today. The digitization of Hookers on Davy couldn't be happening at a more relevant time. The issues that we see in the film, including violence and discrimination, are still happening to sex workers today. Many advocacy groups and sex work collectives are protesting for changes to improve the health and safety for its community members. Unfortunately, the very same requests that were being made in 1983. Janice Cole and Holly Dale created a compelling historical record through beautiful documentary filmmaking. Digitized as part of the Canadian Cinema Reignited program, we have the privilege to watch and preserve the stories that were told in Hookers on Baby. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Hookers on Davy will be available to watch in Canada on Rogers Video on Demand on October 1st and Apple TV and Vimeo on October 18th. Please watch the film to learn more in-depth about the experiences of its characters. Thanks again to Janice Cole and Susan Davis for joining me on this episode. Thank you for listening to Cinema Reignited. I hope you learned something new today about the Canadian film landscape and our country's cultural identity. If you found this episode interesting, please share it with your network and even tag us at the CDN Academy and at Sister Samar. Of course, rate and review the podcast to help us connect with other Canadian film lovers. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss our next episode and hopefully we'll see you next time.